Hey, welcome to the Hell Has an Exit podcast. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 888-699-9395 to speak to a specialist. The show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com. All right, welcome to Hell Has an Exit. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. Uh, Today we have a special guest, uh, John Huffington. Um, You know, in this show, um, just want to say you can always follow us on Instagram at Hell Has an Exit. And, um, you know, on this show, I always interview people that, you know, I normally personally know a lot of recovering addicts, but um, I actually got introduced to to John by a personal friend and uh, he's got an amazing story. He did 32 years in prison on a wrongful conviction. And uh, I know a little bit about the case, but I just kind of want to hear about like, you know, your early life and how uh, you grew up and how you kind of got involved in, uh, in your story and how that unfolded. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, Absolutely. Your podcast is, you know, definitely well received and needed um, and, and certainly has impact for a lot of people out there. So I'm, I feel very humbled and, and privileged to be a part of it. And hopefully my story resonates a little bit. Okay, I guess starting out, um, you know, fairly normal you know, childhood upbringing, that kind of thing. I grew up I guess upper middle class kind of status, but like most folk, you know, we get exposed to a lot of things at young ages and we make choices. And I certainly, you know, got exposed and made very negative choices in lifestyle choices. Um, at a young age, you know, my friends were starting to experiment, you know, it started with marijuana, things like that. Um, and so I did as well. Um, I didn't, I didn't really like weed, <laughs> it, you mm-hmm. know, dried my eyes out. I wore contacts. So it wasn't really my thing, but I don't know. I've sort of always had a business sense too. So I'm looking at my friends buying joints or nickel bags and I'm like, okay, where did that come from? Ounce, you know, quarter pound, pound. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I got more interested in, you know, the entrepreneurship piece of it. And a very young age, you know, started, you know, buying, you know, weight, and then reselling, you know, so I was a drug dealer, you know, that's, that's mm-hmm. what I was doing. But, I, you know, it was sort of limited just to, you know, the marijuana at that point. There was a few other odds and ends that would come our way, but nothing that I dealt in that regard. But then the 80s hit us, you know, and this is, you know, my formative years, I would have been, you know, in the 16, 17-year-old range. And a friend of mine had gone to college in Florida and fell in with, you know, what we now know is one of the cartels and, and you know, wow. has suddenly had access. So, so this is in college? This was my friend who was in college. I was still in the neighborhood. Wow. I would have been, How old were you? I would have been 17 around that time. Wow. And, you know, I'm just moving out on my own, you know, getting my first apartment. And, you know, I was still doing it sort of half and half, you know, had a legal job, was working. But I was certainly, you know... Um, selling drugs on the side, you know, that was probably my primary source of income. How much and, bud would you say you were selling at the time? Well, you know, back then it would just be like, you know, get a pound and break it down and sell some ounces, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. I really wasn't selling a lot of weight. And then the cocaine had come into the picture and, 
you know, I bought an ounce and you break that down, you sell some eight balls, you sell, I was, you know, I was even selling grams and half grams, you know, go to the clubs and do that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But two things happened that changed that dynamic. One, like I said, my friend had gone to college in Florida and, you know, he fell in with, you know, folk that had access. I mean, I'm talking as much as you wanted and in very good quality. So, um, you know, suddenly I had that and my friends had, you know, they were all coming of that age. And so I knew bartenders, I knew bouncers, I knew club owners. And so now I have this network of distribution. So very quickly went from that, you know, one ounce here and there type of deal to keys, mm -hmm. you know, and selling to other dealers and, you know, completely, you know, removing myself from the front lines of the grams and the half grams and things like that. So now, you know, that was my life. And, you know, very quickly, you're partying all night and you know, you're living that kind of lifestyle, like a nine to five doesn't even work anymore. Mm -hmm. And it didn't work for me. And so. how old were you when you started uh, pushing a lot of powder? 17. 17, you're selling kilos? And wow. Wow, that's crazy, yeah. bro. So then, you know, you know, I'm 18. I, you know, I wasn't even working legally anymore. I wasn't even trying to keep up that pretense. I actually had gone and taken out a personal loan, you know, so like in my head, you know, I always think I'm smarter than the average bear or whatever. Like if they come after me, I can say I'm living off of this loan right now, you know, that kind mm -hmm. of thing. But I was making, you know, good money, but I was partying hard too. You know, I was certainly living that lifestyle, I got caught up, swept up in it, you know, at two o'clock, 2.30 in the morning, my place was the place when the clubs closed, everybody came over. You know, it was the stupid stuff. You know, you take out the bathroom sliding mirror and you lay out an ounce of cocaine and you, you go for it. Wow. Now, the interesting thing, you know, like I wasn't, I was certainly using it, but using it in the sense that I already have like a very hyper personality. Like I'm already energetic to start with. And that sort of fed into my personality, but it wasn't a drug that I, you know, had to use or I needed to use. So I don't know. Yeah, you're more addicted to a lifestyle. Total addiction to the lifestyle. You know, you, you know, you, you get the attention, you get so-called respect, you know, the girls are coming around and all those pieces, you know, sort of are, you know, very heady for somebody who's 18, you know. And yeah, I, got I mean, at 18 selling kilos is, is, is no joke. I mean, how much was a kilo back then? Like 20 grand, 30 grand? Yeah, yeah, it was in the 20 range, 22, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of money. Yeah, I, I, I totally lost sense of reality because my reality wasn't real. You know, like I was living in my own matrix and, you know, you affiliate with society, but you're not part of it. You know, like there's a whole underground society, obviously, you know, your peers are people in that lifestyle and you just, you really lose yourself into that world. You know, I mean, it wasn't until I came out of it, you sort of look back like, you know, almost what the heck, you know, what was mm -hmm. I thinking? You know, like, how did that even happen, you know, when you try to dissect that? It just, you know, it morphed into that, and it, it certainly was not healthy. And What was your led, family saying at the time? Well, I, you know, I'd moved out of the family home, and my interactions were probably limited in that regard. You know, back in those days, you know, we didn't have cell phones. That actually was a time where there was no <laughs> cell phones. You know, I remember I had, um, you know, a recorder on my phone, you know, big bulky like tape recorder kind of thing. And you had to carry a remote control, call your own number, rewind the tape, that kind of stuff. And my mother had called 
and you know, hits this voicemail kind of thing because people didn't have voicemails. It was a recorder. And wow. she left me a message like, why do you have this on your phone? Like only doctors and drug dealers have these, you know, like, well, I'm in the latter category. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, this was a very unreal, surreal. So they didn't know how bad it had gotten. You kind of were distant no. from them. There was a serious generation gap. My parents were born in the 20s. I was born in 62. Mm-hmm. So they were in their 40s before, you know, so, and there's a, wow. you know, the world has changed and, you know, I was, ch- I was changing with it, you know, but my parents were very old school, old fashioned, and there was a lot of strife between me and them about curfews and activities and my choice of friends. And, you know, truth be told, my parents were right on every single one of those points. But at that age, you know, I was very rebellious I had a younger brother and sister, you know, who could easily have been influenced. And, you know, it was in everyone's best interest, mine, my family's, that I went and got an apartment at 17 and, you know, kind of kept my distance. And I wasn't raised to be that way. I, you know, my mother specifically had exposed us to every possible avenue growing up. You know, there was a tennis camp, a bowling league, you know, uh, I played trumpet, So, you know, we got exposed to all that. And more importantly, she exposed us to organizations that gave, you know, created a sense of community that created a sense of obligation to be aware of your fellow human beings. So I was, you know, youth group at church. I was in the 4-H. I, you know, went with my mother when she did Meals on Wheels. You know, I spent a summer doing a um, counseling session at a local community center in, you know, a marginalized neighborhood. I did counseling sessions, you know, I did weeks of count, you know, what do they call counselors or tribe leaders for 4-H camp, you know, things like that. So I don't have any excuses because I was exposed to everything and given every opportunity to really, you know, participate, give back and be aware of those that needed or were less fortunate and, you know, should have generated more of an appreciation for what I had. And it took years and a lot of other events for me to regain that social awareness and social conscience. So what happens after, you know, you're 18 years old, selling drugs, living a lifestyle? Well, it didn't last long because I turned 18 in August. In May, I got arrested, and that was the end of everything. Wow, so, it was that fast. Yeah, yeah it, it was very quick. Um, I know this purpose of this podcast, we don't need to go all into the case itself that caused my problems. But I ended up getting charged with a double homicide that was mm-hmm. not something I had done. But And what it was is people that I hung around with, at the time I was hanging around with a lot of the Greeks. And the Greeks, like the Italians, you know, they everybody's got their own thing. And so I was swept up in that world too. And, you know, very easily swayed or persuaded into thinking there was, you know, more to that than it was. So I was friends with a couple, there was three cousins in particular, two of them I was actually friends with. And the one cousin who is on this charge is the one I actually didn't like. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I always felt, and a lot of people that knew him felt the same way, like he was just addicted to coke. Like he was the kind of guy interjected himself in both sides of every deal possible. He wasn't a dealer. Um, Yeah, so this guy is not somebody I would have considered a friend and you know, he'd come over that night. Well, he had called me trying to get like an eighth of an ounce or something, which I only did for friends at that point in time, you know, and I didn't have anything right then, but I was waiting on something. And so I said, you know, hit me later or whatever, but he shows up 
And I don't want them sitting in my place. You know, my connect might show up, you know? Mm-hmm. So we ended up going out and partying with, you know, at a local club. And we were hanging with the owner. And it was a Sunday, and he was shutting down. So we went to another club, all of us from there. And there was where one of the victims worked as a DJ. And he, this guy had worked with me in the past. Um, but he had his own supplies. The DJ? The victim. Yeah, the victim. Yeah. Well, like I said in the beginning, that was you know my network. I had people in these various clubs, so my night consisted of running around this circuit of clubs, dropping mm-hmm. off, picking up, you know that kind of thing. So he had some, and so an arrangement was made to purchase that. And he got off at two in the morning or whatever. We followed him back to where he lived. You know the deal was done between the two of them, and then at that point I went home. So I, mm-hmm. I get the call the next morning you know, from my co-defendant, you know, the Greek guy, and, you know, needing an alibi. And again, I'm young and dumb. I'm anti-police. I don't, you know, I think I'm running with a certain type of element crew type of thing. So I didn't mm-hmm. think twice about it. I'm like, yeah, whatever. So I literally that night went and knocked on the police door. When I found out they were looking for me, I went to the police station and knocked mm-hmm. on their door. And Like, you yo, know, I got the alibi who was with me. Yeah, I go to provide the alibi, and you know, no sooner do I say that, you know, suddenly the dynamic of that conversation shifted, and you know, they're accusing me of murder and telling me I was involved, and they know better, and this and that, and I'm like, oh, you know, holy shit. So my response. So to which them cousin was, was it? Was it the cousin that you didn't like, or it was both right. cousins? No, it was the cousin I didn't like. Right, and we find out later that you know this was something. You know, he had been trying to do or talking to other people about, you know, killing and robbing this guy and all this kind of crazy stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, it even, you know, been with, you know, he was with these undercover cops and, you know, they clearly identified the weapon used as his, you know, because mm-hmm. he got into the police's car at one point and, you know, said, oh, wait a minute, I got to go back and get my gun out of my car. I don't ever go anywhere without it. So, of course, that made the officer nervous when he got in the car. He said, hey, let me see what you carry. And, you know, so he actually saw the weapon, identified it, had some kind of unique um, engraving on the hand grip or something. So, mm-hmm. but anyway, um, so, yeah. Now, now that's the, is that the murder weapon? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. I mean, the the whole case is convoluted, you know, like, you know, so my, when I'm questioned, my only response to them is like, you know, no, I don't have anything to do with this. Like, you can come search my apartment right now. I'll take a lie detector test. I'll do whatever I can to extricate myself. You know, I just don't have anything to say. Mm-hmm. And of course, they're like, yes to both. Like, okay, we'll come search your apartment. And I was like, uh. and I paused and they kind of jumped on that. Like, well, what are we going to find? And I'm like, yeah, you'll find some drug paraphernalia. And so they like, are you willing to turn it in? I'm like, absolutely. <laughs> As of this moment, exactly. I'm retired. Like I knew my, yeah. that world was ended that second. And I was like, you mm-hmm. can have it all. I just want to get myself out of this mess, you know? And mm-hmm. so I turned in, you know, quad, triple beam scales, all that stuff. Um, and you were and 18? Next, yep. Wow. Um, so, they left that night, and then the next morning, you know, I made arrangements to go see a lawyer because I wanted to do the lie detector test. I wanted them off my back. You know, back, like I said, not only did we not have cell phones, it's like, I don't know a lawyer. I'm like 18, so I pull out the yellow pages, <laughs> um, you know, that big book they used to issue years and years ago. And, mm-hmm. you know, I knew a friend of mine from school. I knew his father was an attorney, so that's all I knew. And 
I looked him up by the last name and you know, called that law firm and went over there. Well, it turns out his father was a civil you know, lawyer and his uncle was a criminal defense lawyer. So, you know, it was his uncle that I went and saw and told him what was going on. He's like, well, what do you want to do? And I'm like, I want to take this lie detector test. I just, you know, want to make sure I have a lawyer in the room or whatever. So he said, okay, fine, I'll set that up. And leaving his office is when I got arrested because his office is across the street from the police station. And mm -hmm. my co-defendant, the, the other guy on this charge, his father and uncles own a restaurant next to the police station. So when I walked back to the car, his father was standing out there and I said good morning to him and went and got in the car. Well, what I don't know, didn't know, was during the course of the night, he had turned himself in through an attorney to the police, but put everything on me. Claimed he was a hostage. I held a gun on him, committed two murders, you know, on and on and on. So now they're looking for me. And I don't know this. So his father runs in there and says, you know, John Huffington's out in the parking lot. Next thing I see, the back door fly open and a dozen officers are fanning out into the parking lot, guns drawn, and we're the only car moving. You know, we're just starting to pull out of the parking spot. I was with my sister's fiance. And I just told him, you might want to just stop. I think they're coming after us. And sure enough, they surrounded the car, and and that was it. And it took 32 years, two months, and X number of days before my feet ever hit the pavement again. So that was 18 years old, and when I walked out the door, I was 50. Wow. How old was the cousin? He was mid-20s. So what happened with the case? I mean, was there, like, any other people, you know, any witness, anything like that? No, it was never any of that. There was circumstantial. And then you get the FBI lab involved. And I had three so-called experts from the FBI lab that got involved in my case. Um, one was a hair analysis. One was what they call CBLA, which is composite bullet lead analysis. And that's where they examined like the lead in the bullet and compare that to different bullets found or whatever. And the other mm -hmm. was um, uh, the stripling. You know, there's an expert on like, you know, the way a bullet travels through the barrel, it leaves stripling on the bullet itself, and they can, you know, they claim they can identify it or they can link that right back to a specific weapon. So, you know, honestly, you know, when I went to trial, I was so naive. I'm just and thinking. He, so he murdered two people? I mean, he was charged and convicted for that, yes. Wow. But I went to trial first, and... You know, of course, they're going after the death penalty because, you know, they have him as a witness against me. The problem was there, though, they didn't believe him. The state's attorney knew he was lying because mm -hmm. for various reasons. And plus, they were going to prosecute him. So yeah, they couldn't put him on the stand as their witness. When a lawyer puts a witness on the stand, they're vouching for their credibility. And as an officer mm -hmm. of the court, you cannot put somebody on the stand if you know they're lying. And... You know, Canaris is the name of my co-defendant. Canaris had already failed two lie detector tests. Interestingly enough, they gave him lie detector tests. They never gave me the lie detector test. I got arrested trying to set up. To this day, 30, and now it's 40 years later, I've never taken that lie detector test. It doesn't matter at this point, but I get locked up and I go to jail, no bail. He gets mm -hmm. charged and they set a bail. And then wow. they, unsealed, they unsealed the indictments against him on those drug charges that I was talking about where he brought the undercover police. They unsealed that and gave him another bail on that. So what they were doing, though, he was aware of another deal that was in motion already. There was 
some cocaine that was being brought in from Texas, and he knew about that, and he set that up to be busted. So the guy that was the transport for that got busted in a Golden Ring Mall shop, you know, shopping center parking lot with like $300,000 worth of coke. Mm-hmm. You know, Canaris gave that to them. So once they busted that guy, they didn't really need him out there anymore. There was nothing else he knew about. So they revoked his bail, said he was a flight risk, and put him in the county jail where I was. So now we're both sitting in county jail waiting to go to court. But of course... I'm going to go first because they need him. You know, mm-hmm. they, they still want him to think like it's not going to be so bad for him and they need his testimony. So he can keep so, telling, yeah. And I'm, you know, they're going for the death penalties in my case. Um, wow. Because they got him saying I'm the trigger man, you know, because in Maryland, in order to qualify for the death penalty, you actually have to be the, you know, what they say, the trigger man. You have to be the perpetrator. Otherwise, you could mm-hmm. be there and it's still felony murder and that's life or accessory and that's life. But to get a death penalty, you actually have to have committed it. So now, you know, I've got a prosecutor who's, you know, an assistant state's attorney. So what's going through your head at this time? I mean, you're 18 years old and they're telling you that you killed two people. Well, I know I didn't. So that's what's going through my head. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm still, like I said, I'm still naive enough to think that the system works like it'll figure itself out like honestly you know the truth will come out and i'll be found not guilty and you know i was actually at my at that first trial was actually found not guilty of two counts of first degree premeditated murder you know Mm -hmm. and i started to breathe that side of you know like okay it's over but then they had put it in the same count, which was, you know, two counts of first degree felony murder in the same count. And they found me guilty of that. And I was like, you know, my head was spinning. Like, you just said I was not guilty. Now you're saying I'm guilty. <laughs> like, that mm-hmm. I couldn't even rationalize, you know, because you're standing there taking in this verdict, trying to, you know, process it. And, you know, I'm 18. You know, I think I'm smart. I think I know what I'm doing. But, you know, I'm now you know, 50. Did you ever get like a good attorney or something? Well, not until years later, <laughs> you know, many, many years later. Wow. You just, cause you just figured it would like shake itself out, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of those things like, how are you going to get found guilty of something you didn't do? You know, that's your premise going in, mm-hmm. but it just became more and more. And, you know, it's a change of venue. I end up in this little small country town where they're more interested in, you know, planting the crop than sitting there for two weeks listening to testimony. So, and then you get the FBI coming in their suits and ties. And, you know, in particular, I had this hair analysis guy from the FBI come in and, you know, he testified to, you know, a 98.7% certainty these are John Huffington's hairs. And they were claiming they had two of my hairs at the scene of the crime, which wow. what makes it worse is they claimed that those hairs were found literally on the victim's body. So, you know, you, you know, if you're on a jury and you're like, well, then how did your hairs get on the person's body, a dead body, if you didn't do it? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's not a far reach to see why a jury would convict. But yeah, you know, and, fast and, forward, and, you, you know, know. And they're thinking that, like, there's no way it's an error. This is an FBI lab that probably yeah. operates at, like, 100% certainty. Oh, come on. It's, it's the FBI. I mean, we were all taught mm-hmm. to believe that that was you know, the highest possible echelon of integrity and, you know, Mm -hmm. best practices and everything else. And so was I, but I'm sitting there like, 
you know, I don't know how my hair got there. Like, what are you talking about? Like, so, you know, I ended up on death row. Two, actually, I had two death sentences plus 21 years, all consecutive. Mm-hmm. But the thing about death row at that time, and actually the whole 10 years I was on death row, we weren't locked down. Like normal death rows are segregated, you know, solitary confinement. We were in population, you know, regular prison population. And so not only am I trying to adjust to that, but now, you know, I'm this skinny little white kid from the county walking into the Maryland State Penitentiary, you know, population. So I had to adjust to that as well. And, you know, it's, it's just overwhelming. It's an assault on your senses. It's an assault on your, your mental process to even start to figure that one out. And I guess I did. That's so crazy. I mean, there were young people in there. I, I certainly wasn't the youngest. Mm-hmm. The thing at that time, and we're talking about 81, 82, there weren't, you know, I'm Caucasian and, you know, there weren't that many white guys in population, you know? Um, yeah. And I just, I, you know, I wasn't going to do anything but be a man and, and make my way through it, period. So I did, you know? What was that like? Like, what was like the day-to-day? I mean, I'm, I'm not familiar with how death row works. So death row is basically you're on there so that way you could get the electric chair. Like, that's basically what they're doing at that time. In Maryland, it was a gas chamber. Holy shit, that's crazy. But in that particular time, they didn't lock down death row. Matter of fact, we could actually live anywhere in the prison, meaning we could be housed in any housing unit, any cell, that kind of situation. Like, there was no distinguishing us. You know, the inmate population, trust me, is extremely educated and they know who everybody is and you know quite a lot of them actually watch you know public television and things like that but they're very aware of who you are why you're there what your charge is your time that type of thing especially a high profile case and you know the guards were aware simply because they had like a a board with our ids on it i think there was probably that time maybe 14 of us on death row and so they just had like a board with the extra ID of us on it so the guards would know that guy's on death row, but no other distinction. So how long do you do death row until they actually kill you? Well, there's no framework of that. Every case is unique to itself. It depends on your appeals, you know, where you're at with your appeals, you know, did you win? What stage are you in? It's all based on that individuality of the case. Um, Mm -hmm. and at the time there was not a real rush to execute anybody. So it wasn't a push for that, I guess. And then we had a guy, you know, that did, um, where he was like, I'll buy the bullet. It was firing squad. And, you know, he wanted to die. And so he dropped all his appeals. For some reason, I can't remember his last name, but we had a case like that in Maryland. John Thanos did the same thing. He had done a bunch of time got out, went on some stupid rampage and, you know, got caught and he didn't want to do any more time. So he refused to appeal and all that. And they killed him. They put him in the gas chamber. And the minute that happened, Uh it sort of opened the floodgates. And there was um, four more, I think, after that. And these were guys Uh like John Thanos, I'm not a fan of at all i knew him when he was doing time and the stuff he did when he went home you know like he just it was unbelievably you know crazy what he did so no respect zero respect there but there were some guys that they did execute that i'd gotten to know and you know 
I mean, that's hard. You know, you, you feel it, you know, you, I don't you know, make a comment one way or the other on their case. They may or may not have been fully guilty. I'm not going to comment on that, but now are you in prison saying you're innocent to other people? Are you keeping that to yourself? First of all, like nobody really discusses their case. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. you know, you don't discuss anything because everything can be yeah. a weakness. Like you put your mask on, you don't show emotion, you know, you don't let nobody into your world. You don't let on to anything, you know, like if you forge friendships, then yeah. I mean, you know, I never made any bones about it, but like, who cares? Like they, nobody wants to hear that. Like, yeah, of course, I went wow. prison's innocent, but you know, I was, and you know, I made it clear. And the interesting thing about that is, especially prisoners are really, really good judges of people. They're really good at reading people. And like we knew, I can look at other, I know for a fact a couple guys that were innocent. I knew it. You know, you can tell. Mm -hmm. They did, you know, and I was really grateful. Three of those guys who I helped raise, because they came in at like 17 years old, they just got released wow. Thanksgiving before last. They got exonerated. Wow. And I'd said it all along. I knew they were innocent, you know, so proud to see. I was right there at the courthouse when they came out the door. So, wow. you know, we know amongst each other, we do know. And it's, but it, I always draw the analogy. It's like you fall through a hole in the ice, you know, mm -hmm. and you drift a little bit. And, you know, there's only six inches of ice and people are up there and you're screaming as loud as you can. And everything coming out is these air bubbles. Like nobody can hear you. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You're trapped. You're just trapped. And it's something as minor as six inches of ice is keeping you from, you know, being heard. And that's that's what it felt like. It just feels like you're smothered and, you know, just a coffin in a sense. What was going on, like, emotionally inside? Like, were you calling your family? Was your family trying to help you get out of there? Like, anybody on the street? Like, were you starting to, like, write people? Like, Well, I was doing, yeah, I was definitely doing a lot of the writing. You know, as far as family goes, like, you know, my father and I, it, we'd always had some issues to start with. And, you know, he's a very proud man, you know, and the family name had just been trashed. And... So he completely pulled back. So there was no, there was no support. There was no official family support like that. I was on my own, you know, financially mm -hmm. and everything else. You know, I'd made my choices and, and rightly so, you know, I dug, you know, I made my bed and it was up to me to do something about it. Um, you know, my mother was extremely supportive, you know, and visited every chance she could get, you know, my older sister was in college at the time, so that was difficult. My younger brother and sister were in high school, and difficult for them. You know, this was, you know, front page of the local paper for like nine months straight every week as a weekly paper, and they always just had to find something to write about, you know, and it, it was hard mm -hmm. on them and, it, and very unfair, you know, but, you know, I don't have any control over that. But on my end, like, I just... In my first year in the penitentiary, I just hit the law library. I literally was in the law library like every day, just studying and reading law and trying to, you know, wow. find my fight my own fight, like fight my way out of it. So like you're committed to getting out. Like your first oh, no year doubt. there, you're, you're getting out. You know, you're fighting this. Like you don't ever think that you're actually going to die in prison. No, not at all. And you know, I was just intent on you know surviving and fighting my way out and then i actually won a new trial a year after I, I was sentenced to death row the whole thing got thrown out and started all over again and 
the problem with the second trial was, you know, I got a court-appointed attorney who didn't do anything. Like, literally, at my first trial, my defense lasted for a week. I'm talking about five days of testimony. At my second trial, my lawyer didn't present one single witness, not one. Mm-hmm. When the state rested, he rested because he hadn't did any of the work. He didn't even hire an wow. investigator until that weekend before we were supposed to present our defense on Monday. You know, I met with the investigator on Saturday and, you know, he wow. made no effort to go get these witnesses. And we certainly had, you know, five days worth. Plus, we had learned about four more witnesses just watching my co-defendant's trial, which had happened after us. So we found out about witnesses that the state's attorney had withheld from us and not told us about that were exculpatory to me, including two state troopers, you know? Wow. We didn't know about them. So, including another guy that, you know, apparently Canaris had been with and tried to get him to, to do this crime, you know? So... There was all kind of things available that were not taken advantage of. So the second trial, the result was the same thing. Convicted, put back on death row. And at that point, I had attitude. At that point, I was pretty much over it. I was angry and I was bitter. And I, had my, I started getting in trouble in prison and in jail. Like I actually got street charges at that point just because I just wasn't you know, going to accept anything, you know, I just, I had such a chip on my shoulder. I tried to escape and I got convicted of that. I got five years for that. How'd you try to escape? Um, I saw it through some bars. I had some hacksaw blades smuggled in and saw it through some bars. Oh my God. Made it all the way out to the window. Yeah. Wow. I was done. I wasn't sticking around for this anymore. My faith in the justice system was over. Like I, I cannot was, believe I, you saw through some bars. I've never heard that in my life. That's crazy. And, you know, I had, I don't know, two or three assault charges, you know, like the officers, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it just one of the things, like I wasn't being aggressive and I'm, I wasn't looking to fight, but, I, you know, like I don't want anybody to put their hands on me, you know, inmate or officer. And, mm-hmm. you know, that, you know, setting me off. And, and then, you know, I had my little wake up moment, like, I'm going to say around 86, like that lasted for a year and a half, the bad behavior part. And then I got involved in an organization that was in there, the junior chamber of commerce of all things, the JCs. And, you know, I just, it reawoken my social conscience. And I was like, and I, I took a look at myself. I had my epiphany. I took a look at what I was doing and I'm like, you know, whatever's going to happen, like if I were to lose all my appeals and be executed, like, I'm not going to go kicking and screaming and I'm certainly not going to give them more ammunition to say, yeah, look at this guy. He was a bad guy. I just like, no. And, and more importantly, you know, I, I just made a decision. I need to make some value out of my life. Like I had to make my life count for something, you know? And like, are you like believing in God? Are you like in there praying? Like, are people like, are you, no. is someone in there no. helping you? Like, is any, there's, you're just like kind of just making your own way that like, you know, I'm just going to man up and do this. Yeah, totally. Like in the beginning, you know, I was raised in Presbyterian faith and was a member of my church growing up and all that. And, you know, I have my faith and I got involved with the Christians in the prison, but I, I totally walked away. I was with, um, you know, the prison chaplain was, we were all in a group at one point 
and there was another chaplain that was there visiting, and he said to that chaplain, um, we were, somehow the death penalty came up, and I'm standing right there, and he sort of said it to me too. He's like, you know, part of my job is to go to the governor and ask for commutations in these type of death penalty cases, you know, to stave off the execution. He said, but I would never do that if I didn't believe that person was born again. And I just looked at him like, wow. Basically, who, who the F are you as a man to judge somebody else's belief? So he's saying, yeah, so he's basically saying, I have the ability to save somebody's life, but why would I save them if they're not born again? Right. Like, what, what happens if the person is Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist? Yeah. You're not going to get involved? Like, that, that moment right there is when I totally walked away from all organized religion, religion. inside a prison. Yeah. Like I have, you know, I always tell people to this day, you know, my church is the ocean. You know, I go stand in the mm-hmm. ocean at five in the morning, drink my tea, you know, make my peace, you know, talk to my higher power. I, you know, I have nothing against organized religion. It's not for me. You know, mm-hmm. I don't believe man should be telling other men. You know, I think we find our own interpretations in our own way. 100%. And yes, there are good pastors. You know, there's good pastors out there that can help you guide you in your journey, but not tell mm-hmm. you and dictate to you how it's supposed to be. I, I don't mm-hmm. believe in that. Of course. And tell you that other ones are all wrong and that they're the ones that got it right. Yeah. Let people believe what they're going to believe, you know, and try and find the middle ground instead of taking these staunch opposition stances, mm-hmm. you know, and they're polarizing that you won't even, you can't even hear what the other side is saying. You know, I'm yeah. very eclectic in my learning. I like to hear and learn and then make my own decisions. Of course. But yeah, I mean, I just, like I said, you know, there's a saying, I don't know if you've heard the saying about the dash, you know, the dash is, you know, at the end of all of our time, unless you're cremated, I guess, but there's a tombstone and on that tombstone are two dates and in between is a dash. And it's that dash that defines us. Like, what did you do? How did you make your life count for something? You know, I mean, the average person just simply raising a family and, you know, perpetuating your DNA and, and you know, good citizens into the world, that's a great legacy to leave. And other people mm-hmm. are going to have buildings named after them or they're going to invent something that helps humanity or saves, you know, cancer victims or, you know, there's, there's those extremes. But the average person, you know, it's just about figuring out how to make your life mean something, you know? And that's where the quest that I went on, you know, it's like... Wow. No matter what happens next, like, one, I'm going to give my parents something to be proud of. You know, I was always fighting for my father's approval, never ended up receiving it. But, you know, I I was striving for that. You know, I went and got in the college program. You know, I graduated, you know, 4.0. I was summa cum laude. I was the valedictorian. I was all that stuff. And I I only did it in three years, you know, because they took away our Pell Grants. <laughs> Congress took away our <laughs> Pell Grants and stole my senior year. But, you know, I tried to do all these things, you know, one, to sort of redeem myself with my parents, but also just, you know, just to make it count for something and, you know, make, make a difference, you know? Wow. You know, I never stopped fighting in the courts. There was, you know, I, I won't bore you with all that. There was a barrage of appeals, um, you know, five, four decisions against me, meaning I missed it by one judge. I mean, very close decisions. Wow. Um, And then there was a lot of weight. You know, at one point we did a post-conviction and, you know, we brought the guy from California that actually invented 
the composite bullet lead analysis test and taught the FBI how to use it. And we flew him out from California and he testified. Who's financing all this? Is this like a pro bono thing that a, that a law firm eventually picked up? It is. So yeah, I should be very clear on that. In, uh, I want to say the mid eighties, there was an attorney who wanted to take on a death penalty case at some point in his career. And luckily he got mashed up with me, um, David Stewart. And he was with, a law firm in D.C., Miller, Cassidy, The Rock, Lewin, something like that. And so he started with my post-conviction. And during that time, he got offered a partnership at a different law firm, Ropes & Gray. And he told Ropes & Gray, I, I'll take that opportunity, but I need to bring this case with me. I'm not letting go of this case. Um, and they agreed to it. Um, so Ropes & Gray has now been my pro bono attorneys for, oh, my God, 35, 30, over 30 years. Let's just say well over 30 years. Holy shit. And just like David Stewart, you know, David Stewart did that because two things. One, once he looked at the case, he knew this is messed up. There were several legal issues that were, you know, had risen there. And then two, he, you know, he met me and he believed in me. And, you know, I've had the very good fortune. David's now retired. He, he's an author. He writes books. But they always had like a second, a chair, and then, you know, oh my God, all kind of paralegals and back office staff, things like that. But they've always passed it on, lawyer to lawyer to lawyer, till the point where I'm at today. You know, actually, all the lawyers that were part of me getting out have moved on. And, you know, it's, it's, it's changed over, but what's never changed is their commitment to making sure, one, that I got out, two, that I never went back. It's an amazing, amazing story. And, you know, I don't think you'll find any other law firm would even consider committing that much time, you know, money and everything else into it. And, wow. you know, they've been amazing. I wouldn't be talking to you right now if it wasn't for Ropes and Gray. There's no doubt about that. So tell me about them flying out this expert. Um, so, yeah, so we brought that guy in. And, of course, he testified that, you know, the FBI was doing the test wrong and they, you know, what they were trying to testify to in my case wasn't correct because, you know, they, their formulas were wrong and they were looking at the wrong thing. Their analysis was wrong. So, you know, the post-conviction was, you know, that well presented. It was not just that guy. There were several witnesses that they had put together and brought in and basically almost like a mini trial. But I only bring that part of the appeals up because, okay, we're in court for maybe four or five days, you know, presenting evidence and testimony. And then, of course, the judge is like, okay, I'll take it all into consideration and get back to you. And um, that didn't happen. You know, it took three and a half years for me to get that decision from that hearing. So that just sort of tells you how much attention they paid to my, all my appeals, you know, like three and a half years to get mm-hmm. a yes or a no. And of course it was a no, it was a denial. Wow. So that's the kind of, you know, you, you learned patience. You learned that the system's going to not move at any pace that any reasonable person would think <laughs> um, that it would take that long on different parts of it. And so, you know, I don't want to say I adjust. I I'll say I adjusted. I'd never accepted my circumstances in prison. I just went looking for ways to make it a better situation. So, you know, like I said, I became president of that organization for numerous years, um, and we did a lot of community and charity kind of things. Um, you know, we helped 
raise money for a young girl that needed a bone marrow transplant that the insurance company wasn't going to pay for. You know, inmates doing this. Um, wow. When our Maryland schools in Baltimore City, you know, they were having a lot of problem, I want to say late 80s, with, you know, kids killing each other over jackets or shoes and stuff like that. So they put them into school uniforms to try and alleviate that situation. And a little girl had gotten killed, you know, by a stray bullet during, you know, shootout or whatever at one of our middle schools, Utah Marshburn. And so in her memory, you know, we got involved, inmates. Um, my chapter, the JCs, the, there was a chapter of the NAACP that was inside as well, and they led the charge on this one. And we raised money. We bought those school uniforms. We helped put those kids in uniforms, you know. So That's so cool. And I just saw a recent article where there some inmates in California just did something similar to send somebody to college or something. You know, there's a lot of good men and good women that are incarcerated. It doesn't mean they lose their sense of community. It doesn't mean they lose their sense of humanity. You know what I mean? And they try to do the right thing when given the opportunity. So my role was kind of uniquely situated because I had the respect of like the prison population. And then I also had the respect of the administration. So I could sort of, you know, I could get things done and, you know, we did several like really big projects that, you know, had some impact and, you know, helped the guys inside, but also helped the community out here, you know. So my mother used to tell me, you must be there for a reason. And, you know, I think she was right in a sense for two things. Like, you know, a lot of those younger guys started following me. They joined JCs and, mm -hmm. you know, got out of the gangs and stopped running wild on the yard and became men, became responsible men, you know, went and got their GEDs or college degrees or whatever. And now here we are, you know, 40 years later, and those same men are out here and they're doing well. Wow. I hired a couple of them. <laughs> wow. Two of them were my case managers at my other organization. And, wow. But we, yeah, we do, a, we do an annual picnic where we try to get everybody together and just sort of check in on each other. We have a- Oh, uh, so cool. My best friend has created a support group called First Money Empowerment Group where we try to get everybody together and, you know, Pass on job tips, you know, so, you know, just look out for one another and, mm -hmm. because we're all, you know, kind of older now, you know, so it's a lot harder, you know, when you've come home after decades in prison and you're older to, you know, really mm -hmm. land on your feet and find your way. How did you deal with the like harboring the resentment? Like, did you feel angry? Like at one point, did you like forgive somebody? Like, like, how did you deal with that? You compartmentalize it, I guess. I mean, I get asked that all the time, especially, you know, when I do these kind of talks. It, it never mm -hmm. fails. Somebody will ask me, like, why are you not angry and bitter? Two answers to that. One is, if I were angry and bitter, <laughs> your professor wouldn't have invited me to speak. <laughs> You're like, oh, let me get that angry and bitter guy off the street and bring him in and talk to my kids. <laughs> you know? That's true. So there's that. But, you know, Nelson Mandela, there's a quote attributed to Nelson Mandela when he was released from prison in South Africa. Where basically he said, you know, I knew when I walked through those prison gates, I had to leave my anger and resentment behind in order to lead a fulfilled life. And, mm -hmm. you know, you compartmentalize it, you know, like, what does it get me? You know, I can't look backwards. I have to, I, I have today, I have today to enjoy, hopefully I have tomorrow. And, you know, I want to build a life. I still want to have impact. I'm still driven even out here to have impact in my community in the city that I live in. And 
I'm very involved in a lot of community activities and sit on a couple of boards and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't want to look back. Now, that being said, you know, in the beginning, I had faith and trust in a system, and that was betrayed. But what made it worse was the prosecutor in this case. The prosecutor in this case started out, you know, this is early on in his career. He's an assistant state's attorney, and he gets this case. And now, you know, he gets, you know, a lot of attention because it's a double death penalty case, and I'm on death row. At that point, he runs for state's attorney and wins. Mm -hmm. And then he became the longest-serving prosecutor in Maryland's history. He held that office for 37 years. Um, So he was the nemesis. This is Captain Ahab and Moby Dick's situation, you know. Like, he always came after me, no matter what. And at first, I thought, okay, he's doing his job. Because interestingly enough, my mother and his mother knew each other. Our sisters took piano lessons together. Wow. (laughs) And again, I'm thinking he's just doing his job. But then we start peeling back the layers of things he was doing, including, you know, pulling me out for an attorney visit when I was in the county jail. Like, you you can't do that, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and then lied about it afterwards. And then there was a whole lot of other things that we uncovered, you know, that he was withholding evidence and everything else. And then it leads to how I came home, which, you know, starts with the Oklahoma City bombing case. After that case, a whistleblower came out of the FBI lab, made a lot of allegations about what was going on. It launched a big investigation by the Inspector General's office, after which they issued, you know, a 400-page report. In that report, they named the agent who had testified in my case, the hair guy. They, wow. And what they said about him is that he consistently misrepresented evidence and testified outside of his area of expertise. To me, that sounds like you just called him a liar. You know, what do I know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I was never able to win an appeal on that. So time goes on. Mm-hmm. I go, I get affiliated with the National Innocence Project. Uh, I want to say like 2003, somewhere in there. We filed to DNA test those two hairs. So this is going to cost me probably $15,000. I have to pay for this, okay? Wow. Now, remember, I've been locked up, you know, my whole adult life, you know, $15,000. So the minute we filed that motion, the state's attorney, in writing, can't make this up, in writing, his response was he asked the court's permission to destroy the hair evidence. Holy shit. That argument didn't win. The judge did not grant him the right to destroy the evidence. Um, so it was approved for us to test it. So it goes to the number one DNA lab in the country, mitotyping DNA in Pennsylvania. Um, and then we get a call from, or my lawyers get a call from the lab, and it's like, what do you want us to do? And like, test the hair. What are you talking about? Well, it turns out it's not two hairs. It's like 10 microscopic slides. Each slide has five to six hairs on them. None of them are identified. They're sort of laying on top of each other. It's like mm-hmm. it would have cost probably eighty dollars to $90,000 to test all those hairs. And at the end of the day, like, where did they even come from? You know, where did they come from? We don't know. God damn. So that never made it any headway. Oh, my God. So then at that point, we had to send it back, and we're done. Like, there's nothing else to do. Like, at that point, my lawyers were actually like, yeah, we're going to have to withdraw from the case. So I, there was a period of time. How long have you been in prison at this point? That would have probably been probably like 28 years or something. Wow. Yeah, it was around that time. It was, it was a good bit, 25, something like that. 
And then in our state, our governor signed a new law into effect, which was called the writ of actual innocence. And it's not based on DNA. It's based on totality of the evidence. Because normally you can only talk about one item. You can say, that's a glass of wine. You can't talk about the fact there's a, a plate with a steak and vegetables on it and you know, a cup of coffee. You can't now use that to say, well, this is dinner. You just have to say that's a glass of wine. Mm-hmm. So under totality of evidence, you can bring everything in and say, yeah, if you look at everything together, it starts to add up. So my law firm came back in. We filed that. We went to court. And now the state's attorney being <laughs> the smart ass that he is, he's telling the judge, like, I'm tired of this case. He had a chance to test the hair. He never tested the hair and da 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 So now the judge is like, yeah, why didn't you test the hair? And it gave my lawyers an opportunity to say, well, Your Honor, here's why. Wow. So the judge turned to the state and said, I want you to test these hairs. I'm going to hold this whole hearing, you know, until we get the results. So all summer long, they were supposed to test the hairs. And he never tried, not once, to test the hairs. Instead, he spent the summer, he, he had the FBI lab or whomever, DNA test, like the pants the boots, the jacket, any article of clothing, all of it comes back negative. So we get to September or whatever, and he contacted my law firm and said, we're done. You know, I don't have anything left to test. Let's just go back to court. And meanwhile, the judge had asked a couple of times, how's it going? And he's like, oh, yeah, we're working on the testing now. But again, he was never testing the hairs. We don't know why until suddenly, out of the blue, we get a phone call, we meaning my law firm, from Spencer Shue, who's a reporter at the Washington Post. And he's about to do this big expose on the FBI lab, Watergate style, you know? Mm-hmm. And he researched it. And I'm the Maryland case where this, you know, particular agent had testified. And Michael Malone's his name. So he was calling my law firm for background. So, of course, my lawyers are like, well, we're in court. You know, we're still in process. We can't talk about the case. Well, he had my FBI file. He, is, he got it through the Freedom of Information Act. And I should note that we tried to get that years earlier. It took a year, and we were denied. They said it wasn't there. It wasn't in the file cabinet, so we never got that file. So when he told us what was in there, what was in there were two documents. After 1999 with the you know, Tulsa, Oklahoma City bombing case, what nobody knew, we knew about the public report that came out through the Inspector General's office, but what nobody, the public, was not aware of was the FBI had launched their own internal investigation, and they hired outside forensic scientists to come in and review every case that Michael Malone had touched. So in my file, there's a report from their expert, and that expert said, no way. Wow. His, his findings were there was no way that... FBI agent Michael Malone could have said to a 98.7% certainty, like he even questioned whether Michael Malone had even done the test himself. Mm-hmm. Like this is whole report. And then the other document was a letter from the And F- that was in your file the whole time? The whole time. God damn. And also, so now they, the FBI sends the letter to the state's attorney telling him about this report and telling him he might want to notify me or my attorneys because it's exculpatory. And the state's attorney buried that. Wow. 2003, when I go to try to DNA test the hair, the first thing the state's attorney did, ask permission to destroy it. Now we know why. Like, we didn't know why. Why would you ask to destroy the evidence? He already knew there was a problem with it. 
So now this is about to come out. And when it, let me tell you something. When it came out, you know, it was front page. It was a humongous article. It got picked up internationally. It was a big scandal with the FBI lab. It was on every talk show. I mean, the FBI lab discontinued their use of microscopic hair analysis over this. So, you know, this big article is coming out. So he scrambles. He goes back to the FBI and says, you know, shit's about to hit the fan. We got to do something. So they announced they're going to DNA test the hair and their test is going to consume the sample. So I'm hitting the panic button in prison. Like, no, get that back to our lab. You know, like mm -hmm. if we let them test it, they'll use it and say it's mine. There won't be anything left for us to counteract it with. But they did it as a peer review, meaning they had other scientists or whatever watching the test when it was conducted. And long story short on that, it was not my hair. DNA conclusively proved it wasn't my hair. So you would think happy ending. I went rid of actual innocence and go home. Well, that's not what happened. <laughs> I did I did win the writ of actual innocence. I had to pay a half a million dollars cash bail to come home. And then the first four years I was home, I was literally on bail because it had been sent back to the same state's attorney to decide about further proceedings. So of course he's still going to come after me. I'm facing another trial where he's going to try and send me back to prison. For the first four years I was home, that's what I was living my life like. But, you know, I, I got really blessed. I had a pretty strong network. I landed on my feet, I guess, pretty quickly. was able to start a career. Now, this is all while I'm still in bail. Basically, I got one foot on a banana peel. I could be sent back to prison. But, you know, I was successful in, in launching a career. Um, I actually became the director of workforce development for one of the largest nonprofits in Baltimore. Um, and I oversaw, you know, I had a staff of uh, probably 25 direct reports to me and um, very prestigious. And I was senior staff. I'm running, you know, the adult workforce program for Baltimore Forum. You know, I'm in charge of a budget of 3.5 million. I have three physical buildings under my portfolio and, you know, people that, I'm responsible to, you know, mm -hmm. and meanwhile, I'm on bail the whole time. So, wow, that's so cool. I, I was blessed in giving that, you know, in being given that opportunity and, you know, having a chance to, to, you know, again, have impact and, you know, make a difference, you know, through my work. So he offered me a deal, I don't know, let's say year three in this. You know, the, the deal was if I played guilty, it'd be time served. I would never go back to prison, it'd be over. And he, you know, he's like, you got a month to think about it, whatever. So, you know, I don't need a month to really think about that one. That's a straight no. Holy shit. But I did take the month. Now, during that time, he announced his retirement. <laughs> and then when I basically turned around and told him I'm not taking that deal, he took his retirement back. <laughs> wow. What sustained me was the truth. Mm -hmm. That's what sustained me. And like... Whatever kept me alive, whatever that little flame inside of me was, I'm not letting them blow that out, you know? Yeah, wow. I mean, it's certainly tempting, you know, after you've been home for a couple of years to think about you don't want to go back, but... And then a year after that, he turned around and offered me what's called an Alfred plea, where that plea, you get to maintain your innocence. He gets his conviction, because basically you're saying, I'm taking the deal because it's in my best interest. Mm -hmm. And, you know, look, I built a network, you know, like, you know, I have cabinet secretaries in the governor's office on my cell phone that are friends of mine. You know, I have access to the governor. I work with, mm -hmm. 
you know, I helped Ray Lewis launch his um, nonprofit, Power 52, from the Baltimore Ravens. And, mm-hmm. you know, we work with Kevin Plank and Under Armour. We, we launched one of our community centers into the Under Armour house. So this is the network that I'm sort of moving in now. And, like, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm debating that. And then I'm dealing with this prosecutor who we already know lies, cheats, manipulates, you know. And I know that if I go to trial, it's not going to be a fair trial yet again. You know, and I got to weigh that. Do I really want to risk, you know, this guy is so intent on protecting his, what he thinks is his legacy or whatever, you know, rather than just admit, okay, I was wrong. Like, you weren't wrong. The FBI guy was wrong. You could easily just say, okay, I went with the the evidence and now I know like everybody else knows that the FBI guy lied. But no, you got to take the position that you know you think I'm guilty and you just got to keep coming after me. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, I, that's where my anger or my bitterness is directed at him. And I will say this, interesting enough that we're doing this podcast taping today, he's been charged for what he did to me. He goes on trial Tuesday next week. Wow. Next week, Tuesday and Wednesday, he will be on trial. And you know, there's six charges against him for what he did in my case. So if there's any karma, if there's any... And who knows what he's done in all these other cases. Exactly. Holy shit. Yeah. So, and that's why this is important. You know, but this, he's not going to do prison time, right? No, the worst case is they disbar him. He's already retired, and he's already said he's not going to practice law again. So, you know, there is no remedy to this. It has no bearing on my situation whatsoever. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't affect me one way or the other. It's not... You know, it's not about being vindictive. It's about if we're ever going to start fixing this situation and create a criminal justice system that 18 year old kid believed in, then this is how we start. You know what I mean? And that's why he's on trial next week. It's the Attorney Grievance Commission of Maryland that filed the charges. Yeah. Not me. I filed the request, but they investigated and they charged him. Mm-hmm. And I, I hope he's held accountable. Yeah. Well, man, I'm really uh, grateful that you were on the show. I mean, this was something that, you know, I'm just sitting here thinking like how my life has ended up talking to you. You know, Um, you got an amazing story. Like everything you said is like super commendable. Like, um, you know, I don't know if I would be able to do anything similar to that. Like, um, you know, I'm just sitting here in awe, to be honest with you. I appreciate it. But I think, too, that, you know, every body has that inside of them, that resiliency and that ability to find your way back. You know, just like your title, Hell Has an Exit. We certainly, it does. Mm -hmm. Be ornery. Like, be the cockroach that's going to survive everything. Just be ornery and survive. Mm -hmm. Find your way and survive. And, you know, some of that stuff is always easier said than done. And it's hard, you know, to put bitterness and things like that aside. But at the end of the day, you know, it's, there's another adage. Don't drink poison and think the other person is going to die. Like, you're renting space in your head for somebody else. Like, own your own space in your head and mm-hmm. control your reaction to situation. That's all you can do. You know, I really hope that, uh, you know, some type of justice is served. And, um, you know, with what you're doing in the, in the judicial system and, like, you know, all those innocent programs, man, it's just uh, real commendable, to be honest with you. My admiration is right back at you. Keep doing what you're doing and helping everybody out there that listens to you. And and thank you for doing it, man. I appreciate you, John. Thanks for having me, Brian. I appreciate it, man. It's been fun. All right. Thank you.
This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 888-699-9395 to speak to a specialist. This show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com.